<laughs> That's wrong. Hey, man. I'm so, <laughs> you can cut that part out, right? What's architecture really about? Arcuspeak is the show that dares to peek under the architectural kimono, exposing what architecture really is, what it is that architects really do, and show you why we are passionate about our chosen profession. I'm Neil Pan. Join Evan Troxel, Cormac Phelan, and me as we have a casual conversation about all things architecture, which includes all the stuff people don't talk about. Think you already know what architecture is really about? Tune in to find out. It's time for some Arcuspeak. So Cormac, why don't you start us off for episode 12 about your, uh, your story about uh, the recent site visit you had. All right. Well, kind of the topic that I want to talk about today um, on this episode comes from I had a free weekend, no family, um, nothing. I hopped in the car. I drove west for about three hours and um, ended up in falling water. Took a great tour of both the uh, Kentucky Knob uh, or Kentuck Knob um, site that they've got, which you know the, they they had some good uh, docents there, but wasn't as um, kind of in tune with what was going on. With um, they didn't seem to be as uh, educated as um, the docents at uh, Falling Water. And um, I could tell that one of the docents there was either an architect by trade or p- probably an architectural historian. She was this German lady that, um, you know, we kind of kept having these side conversations as we were walking through. Everybody was, you know, doing the ooh and the ah, and I, I really wasn't saying much because I don't really like to talk during architectural tours. Um, one, cause either I know the subject matter and either kind of disagree with what they might be saying or don't know the subject matter. And I just want to absorb, um, what I'm hearing. But as we were talking, you know, we, we started talking about, um, how Americans, now this is coming from a German, um, how Americans view the longevity of architecture. And I started thinking about permanence in architecture. Um, and not necessarily the whole Vitruvian, you know, firmness type permanence in architecture, but more of what we, you know, how we design, how we specify the materials. And, and I'm talking more about today's architecture. Um, are we kind of designing obsolescence into our buildings as we're designing them. And what I mean by that is if you look at, and uh, you know, I, I review our, you know, submittals all the time. And one of the main things that I have to review is the material, um, uh, 
warranties, you know, warranties for five years, warranties for 10 years, possibly up to maybe 20 years. So we're essentially designing buildings with a material lifespan of maybe 20 years. Craftsmanship, probably a little bit longer than that. And so it just got me thinking about, you know, the permanence of architecture. Um, and, uh, you know, just wanted to really have open up a conversation and see what you guys, you know, think about, um, you know, is it something that we should really worry about? Um, you know, does architecture really need to be something that is long lasting? Um, or is it something that we should accept as, as temporary? So I'm just going to throw that out there. Well, you know, when I'm dealing in the public arena and, you know, there's different levels of the public arena. But, I mean, if you go, Cormac, you know, if you go to Washington, D.C. and you, you visit the National, National Art Museums and you, you visit the monuments, I mean, those are built to last, right? Those are – and not only so are they built to last, they are, they're built for thousands of people to touch them every day. Um, and then I'm dealing uh, on another level, which is schools, which get thousands of kids in them every day. Um, and they're dealing with an entirely different budget, right? Um, they're dealing with, you know, how how good can you make it for as little money as possible? Because they they never have enough money to build the school that, that they should be building. True. But, but the school should last 100 years. Um and then I'm thinking about the car that I'm restoring that's 40 years old. It's actually almost 45 years old. And it needs to be entirely redone. And most of, you know, I live in a house that was built in 1947. And because of the owners who were here before me, it's in really good shape. And, and I think what it really comes down to is permanence is has a lot to do with how you take care of and how you maintain the building. Um, because totally the buildings that. that we build today out of sticks and stucco and, um, you know, for the most part, at least here in Southern California, they are not meant to last that long, but you can make them last that long. Um, but it's like a car. You've got to maintain it. Well, I think... And rebuild. <laughs> You look at all these Neutra buildings and these Frank Lloyd Wright buildings and these Lautner buildings and Schindler buildings, and they do have to be gone through and sorted out and, and redone because they, they were cheap architecture at the time. Um, but, but if you care about them, then, then people do rebuild them the right way. Well, but, but isn't that also true of some of these more monuments that you mentioned in, in D.C.? Um, I mean, sure, they're, they're built with materials that are going to last longer than – than a, a wood frame and stucco, um, but yet at the same time, it seems every time I'm in D.C. or uh, I mean, some building, some structures always under some sort of reconstruction or repair um, to those monuments. Yeah. So even though they might be built to last a little longer, they're not sure. built forever. Well, I'm glad that you guys both brought up D.C. and let me use this as an example. Um, I.M. Pays, uh, National Gallery of Art, uh, you know, there's the East Wing and the West Wing. One is, um, you know, more of a traditional 
uh, design, and then you've got uh, Pay's extraordinarily uber modern. It was designed in the seventies. Uber modern and, in the seventies. Yeah, and and recently, um, and I, I think it was just after you guys left Neil um, on uh, mm-hmm. from last year's AIA convention that the scaffolding started going up, and every single bit of its exterior cladding, all of the stone was removed and every bit of the steel um basically brackets and hooks and everything else that were used to um put this uh building you know uh, put the um cladding on um had failed uh and has been failing actually for the past i don't know maybe uh half decade and um you know, they, they recognized that there was, you know, huge problems with it. And they spent probably, you know, Evan, you and I would look at the budget that they spent just on repairing this one building and think to ourselves, well, that could have been two or three different schools. Yeah, I'm sure. Brand new schools. Sure. And, um, you, you know, so you, you wonder, you know, it. we look at the building and we, we think about how, you know, fantastic it is, cutting edge design. Um, at that point in time, I mean, nobody was doing, uh, he was, he was trying to take a traditional building method and make it do something in a modern interpretation that's never been done before. And, you know, so he experimented with the way that the, um, uh, the veneer was held onto the building and ultimately it failed. Well, it has this um, super monolithic look and feel to it, right? But what you're saying is it's a curtain wall. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's it's it um uh if once it was pulled down, it to, it looked like <laughs> any brick veneer that I would do on, you know, one of our schools that this you know, the school board requires us to put a brick veneer on. But when I was, um, I visited that building when I was in college and that was one of the buildings, one of the first buildings that I was ever in that was real architecture. It sat me down and made me look up at that skylight, you know, oh, and yeah. say, whoa. And it changed how I felt when I walked into that room. And I think, you know, when you're talking about the permanence of architecture, not all architecture deserves to be permanent. And, and, and that's, I'm glad you're, you're going that direction because that was kind of where my conversation, that, that's where the conversation wanted to go. Is it permanence if it's something that lasts forever or if it's permanence in its way that it makes you feel? Um, you know, which goes back to the whole, you know, um, uh, definition, the Vitruvian definition of firmness. I mean, you know, it's, it's that lovable architecture. Um, and, and so I, I'm, I'm, I didn't mean to cut you off, but I'm, I'm kind of glad you're going in that direction. Well, yeah, because we deal with, um, historic buildings all the time and, you know, there's different levels of historic that need to be preserved, right? I mean, we know that there's restoration and there's preservation and there's, um, all of these, you know, there's like five different levels of, of saving old buildings to certain extents and, not all of it deserves to be saved just because of how it looks. And I think a lot of people get caught up in 
how it looks, right? I mean, that's that's a lot of what people's definition of architecture is. But to me, when you when I walked into Pay's building, it was how it feels, and that's right. what made it architecture to me. Um, yes. And so I think this is something that we struggle with all the time. We I've worked with historic preservation architects who are experts in their field, and and basically, you know, they come up with a scale and should where does this building fall within the scale and is it on the national register and, or is it not? And do we need to just worry about the facade and you could gut everything behind it? Or do you need to worry about the whole building? And, and then you start thinking about cost. I mean, you, like you said, you could build a whole building or two for the cost of repairing the one building. And there's a lot of things to weigh there, but um, you know, there is some, some sentimental thing that we just hang on to for dear life. And, when, when, if you think about it, you could replace that building with something way better for a lot less money, and everybody would forget about the old building. I mean, where? How does that fall into the equation? <laughs> well, where? When did uh, you know? You're talking about historic um, evaluation of, of buildings and such. When did this all begin? Um, I'm a little curious about this because. Um, and this kind of falls into that permanence uh, idea because when I was on a, our local historic preservation commission, you know, our rule was basically any structure older than 50 years um, had to come through our commission. And, um, you know, and, and that was fine. That was a good rule of thumb to have and, and something. But, you know, f- now maybe 60 years ago, but or, or longer ago, say in the 1920s or 30s or 40s, you know, nobody cared. Um, you know, if, uh, you know, oftentimes a building burned down, um, in, and so a new building was created, maybe in the twenties or thirties or or nineteen hundred, and that's the building we now uh, all love. But there was something there before that. But even you know, say in nineteen fifty or something, and you know, some nineteen ten structure or eighteen eighty structure, hell, they just mm-hmm. tore it down, and nobody cared. It's like, ah, yeah, that that building's all run down. Let's just tear it down. And we'll put up something with, you know, brick or stone or concrete or something and, you know, kind of a different style of architecture and yay, it's, it's, it's all great. And nobody really cared about historic preservation at the time. And so the, the permanence of buildings, you know, when did we really start caring about our average buildings in our towns, uh, towns and neighborhoods, you know, maybe not the, um, since we're talking about Washington, you know, certainly, you know, the, the Lincoln Memorial or the Washington Monument and some of these other, you know, older structures that, you know, we care about and that, you know, obviously we want to preserve the history of. Uh, but what about our, you know, our houses or our little uh, commercial buildings in town? I mean, oftentimes a building is is torn down or shopping center, you know, something's torn down. It's deemed architecturally in, insignificant. Uh, but who's to say it's insignificant today when maybe 50 years from now, maybe it yeah, will Yeah, you be. know, there was a, a John Lautner building nearby me in Pomona that was, it was a restaurant or something, and and it was torn down. And, and to me, if you go back and look at the imagery of this building, it was an amazing building. And it was like, I'm thinking, why the hell did they tear that thing down? It was this great thing, and I'm sure that they saw it. It was probably in disrepair and it was an eyesore and they wanted to put, you know, the city probably rezoned it as commercial for, 
you know, they wanted to make tax money off of this, this corner lot or whatever. And so they're like, yeah, let's get this thing out of here and let's put up some, some strip mall in his place and put in a parking lot. Um, it goes both ways, right? There's, there's stuff that you see that is preserved and it's like, why the hell did they preserve that? And then there's other stuff that's torn down that you're like, why did they tear that down? But then it goes the opposite way for those groups of people as well. Exactly. And, um, <laughs> talking about the kind of like the memory lane of, of, of architecture. Um, this past weekend we went to, uh, Gettysburg because it's the 150th anniversary of the battle of Gettysburg. So we went to Gettysburg, but to me, it was kind of a bittersweet going because, um, probably about three months ago, they tore down, um, the Richard Neutra, um, cyclorama building. Oh yeah. And, you know, I mean, Neutra, if anybody knows me, Neutra is one of my favorite architects. And, um, you know, we've got very few uh, examples of his work on this side of the, of the country. And, um, you know, you go there, you know, I went there probably about two months before they, uh, finally demolished the building and you go there and you're looking at it and there's really no reason. I mean, structurally it's in great condition. Um, probably, you know, it clearly needs, you know, new coats of paint and a lot of cleaning, um, and, and, you know, probably, you know, recall it and maybe reproof it because they walked away from that building. It, that building no longer served their need. They built a brand new, um, visitor center and brand new cyclorama. So that building no longer, um, fit the bill for them. They, walked away from it and left it there to, to basically decay on its own. And surprisingly enough, it actually stood up pretty well, um, for something that they literally just ignored. Went there on Saturday. You would never know it was ever there. The, it has been demoed there. The, they've regraded it. Uh, grass has grown in, um, but you were never going to be able to, I, I remember when I went there and it was still open, um, for the first time, you know, decade or so ago, and you would never would get the perspective of the battlefield from any other place, but the observation deck on the roof of that building. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so you can go in there and you can sit in the field and say, okay, this is how, you know, they saw it back in, um, first person perspective. Exactly. But, you know, in, in this particular case, we're not trying to go for the first person perspective. We're trying to kind of get the breadth of, you know, this entire, um, battlefield from, you know, general, uh, you know, general Meade's, um, headquarters all the way over to the pickets charge, you know, and see everything, together. And, um, you know, you're just not able to do that anymore. And, and, but their rationale was that they just wanted to return it back to the way it was, even though, you know, there's a McDonald's and a Kentucky fried chicken and all this other stuff, you know, within (laughs) view of the battlefield, (laughs) you know, so you, you, you just, you know, it's just, you you look at it and you were like, well, why, just like you were saying, Evan, it's like, why is one building more important than another? You know, but then you ask, you know, okay, well, if it doesn't serve its purpose, because, you know, my wife and I say this often, 
if a building has been abandoned for five years and, and no one's, you know, clearly using it, why don't they come in and they demo it, you know, and either return that land back to, you know, the natural order of land or, you know, um, just repurpose it for something else. Um, you know, so it's just this interesting, you know, it goes back to what Neil was saying is when did we start caring about um, preserving buildings and um, is it, because of this nostalgic feel that we want to continue to keep feeling is, Oh, I remember back in the day when I went to this building, it made me feel like this. So I want to keep the building and keep feeling like that. That's the, that's our hoarder <laughs> mentality that we have, right? We, we yeah. love, we have the sentimental value tied up in, in so many things. Well, you know, um, an example of a building I, I, I visited and, and, it reminds me of your cyclorama story is uh, Villa Savoie by, or how yeah, do you say that? Savoie, Savoy, Savoie. Okay. Uh, by Corbusier. And when I saw that building in the early nineties, it wasn't in very good shape. Um, and, you know, since then it's been restored and, and the quite the opposite of what happened to Neutra's building. You know, they, they, somebody thought there was value to that and spent the money and and repaired it and fixed it up and decided not to tear it down you know so you know hopefully we're 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 better off as in in our architectural community uh for that but um you know but that's an example of a building that was in disrepair and 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 was was fixed yeah, up yeah you know i've i've been a part of a couple of online petitions trying to get the word out about them you know for for architecture that's on the endangered list right i mean there's there's been mm -hmm. examples where developers have come in under a guise to where they're going to fix up a place and then they immediately as soon as the purchase has gone through they they tear it down and subdivide the land and build four townhomes on it and uh i mean that was <laughs> yeah. about to happen to the david wright house in phoenix or scottsdale that was about to happen to the the Cronish House in Beverly Hills. And I mean, exactly. There's, there's these examples with Frank Lloyd Wright houses and Richard and Dion Neutra houses where, um, because of the internet, they are, they have been able to have been saved, but then, um, you know, there's always kind of this controversy surrounding these, these places that are kind of on the verge of, or maybe they're not, maybe they're not even in that bad of shape, but it's just an opportunity for somebody to come in and and work the system uh, because it's a prime piece of real estate. Um, well, it, I was going to just point out, uh, you know, in my in my local community, that's happened quite a bit, um, where we've seen older homes from the '30s or something uh, that you know are just fine, you know, and they may be even newer, maybe from the '50s, but they were built on larger lots that could be subdivided. And in some cases, they're torn down because they're deemed architecturally insignificant or there's no history, no, no, no uh, local famous person, you know, lived there or uh, was visited there, you know, or it wasn't their place of business um, or, or just um, you know, there, there's, there's nothing or, or there's multiple versions of that same type of house, same detailing, you know, spread throughout the city. So it's not like the last one or the only one. And that's a difficult, um, you know, it's a difficult thing. Our city is very good about 
going through and analyzing all of those different aspects of an older home, uh, you know, or an older building in town to determine, you know, is this worthy or, or is it okay yeah. to tear it down? And, and that's really nice. And, and oftentimes it, it, it is an opportunity for a developer to come in. I can think of two different, three different examples where that's happened in town where, you know, there's opportunity to build four townhomes or more. Um, uh, you know, on a, on a site. And there's one, one good example where there, even the developer wanted to move a house. And, um, there was a, a, a huge effort put in by the city, by the developer, by the local historical, um, society to save this house. And it was, it was actually picked up, moved like two blocks down the street and put onto another vacant lot. And so there's a success story there. Now that house still exists. It may not be in its original location. Um, but it's it's still there, and it you know something for for everybody in in town to cherish. Yeah. So um, sometimes that you know that that can work, and um, and it, and that the permanence of that building is going to last much longer now. Well, let's you know let's take this even further because you, you know you're, you're bringing up a, a, a great point. Um, you know, by this one building, you know, the city wanting to save it and and relocate it, but. Does mm-hmm. does the relocation of that house then change the fabric of the place? You know, not just where it was, but now where it is, and you know the development that you know came in, you know, and basically pushed this um, this house to you know two blocks down the road. Um, how is all of this dynamic like changed? You know, the spirit of the place. Well, you know. Yeah, it definitely, in this case, it changed it a lot. Um, in this one example, it, it was, you know, where it was at before was kind of, it was still on a busy intersection in town. Um, but now it's on another busy intersection, but it's right across the street from a McDonald's that's lit up like all the time. And, you know, you got this, this intersection actually has a stoplight. The other one didn't. So now, you know, the person who now lives there has got these, you know, red, yellow, you know, green lights going off 24 <laughs> seven in quite their the living same. room. So <laughs> it's not quite the same for that person, but you know, we've had other examples in town where an older building has been picked up and moved to another location. And actually, um, the one I'm thinking of, uh, had a, still, is still, uh, still, it's not in that look. It's not even in the second location it was moved to. It's in now in a third location being repurposed for mm-hmm. another reason. Um, and when it was in its second location, it actually fell into some pretty uh, bad disrepair and was, was, uh, probably about three or four years ago used as a movie set, yeah. actually. Um, and, and a film was, was filmed in that building. And then it, and then it was moved again. So not only did its original site change and develop to something else, but its second site has now been changed to something else and it still lives on. In a, in in a third location. Well, let, now. let me give you a couple different so, examples of of my experience where. Yeah. Okay, so so there's a school that I was working on. It's a K eight. It's in Beverly Hills. Beverly Hills has four or five K eights. They have a lot. Now they have one high school. So all these schools feed into the high school. Their enrollment is dropping over the next ten years projections, and. They've got these schools that were built in the 1920s. All these K-8s were built in the 1920s. 
And buildings that were built in the 1920s do not fit the educational system <laughs> of 2013. They, they are definitely not going to fit the education system of 2020 or 2030. No. That the spaces are not conducive to our modern educational environment. It would be cheaper to tear the building down and build a new one than it is to fix the existing building. Okay, so in that case, where you're talking about a specific use, you know what it's going to be. Um, they were actually considering just keeping the front facade of the building to keep all the people who live within four blocks of that school happy, but everything behind it would be completely new. Okay. Wow. Now another flip side of that coin is the High Line in New York. I had the the occasion to go visit that a few months ago, and I walked it with two of my friends, Mark Schumann, Mark LePage, um, and it was like they took this old crappy thing and they made it this. They activated the meatpacking district of New York City with an elevated train. It's insane. And it is unbelievably awesome the way what they've done with that part of the city. I mean, DSNR did an amazing job by with with a very small kit of parts. You know, they've got the same stuff everywhere, but it creates this experience that weaves through blocks and blocks of the city. And it is amazing. Um, and it was like, if they would have tore this thing down and we didn't, and we never saw the High Line, like that, it, it's just an amazing thing to think about when you're there. You're like, this might not have ever existed. Um, and it's this old thing. Those are two different sides of the story where it's like, one, it doesn't fit, right? But then you've got New York City and they made it fit um, it because they were able to think out of the box. And I think that when you're repurposing old architecture, even if it's not a building, if it's, if it's an elevated train, um, I mean, it, it just is it's pretty phenomenal what people can do if they don't think within the original constraints. And I think even with that school in Beverly Hills, there's ways to make old buildings do new things. Um, and it, and it's pretty exciting constraints to work within as an architect. You've just explained well, you the know, last five years of my life. Yeah. Yeah. Right. With it in Annapolis, right? <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, well, let's take this back a, a little further. I mean, we're we're talking about buildings maybe a hundred and to hundred and twenty years old, but what about buildings a couple thousand years old, or uh, maybe not a couple thousand years old, but even two, three, four hundred years old? I know when I lived in Italy, there were you know literally every building was repurposed yeah, at I some think, point I, uh, for I something think it else. It's important to bring up the differences in you know different parts of the world because. When I was in school, you know, what I was told um, is there are pieces of land in Europe that are set aside for great architecture, uh, where in the U.S., you know, it's it's not like that at all, for the most part. It's just like whatever happens, happens, whoever whoever yeah. gets there first. Um, and I think that, you know, they, they are thinking about that in a more permanent fashion when it comes to, to that respect. 
Well, do you think they do you think they think that way because they have permanent architecture that's yeah. been around for thousands of years that around them? I mean, here, uh, you know, certainly Evan, you and I on the West Coast, you know, what architectures existed, you know, I mean, what's the oldest building outside of um you know, yeah, the missions, you know, what, hundred less than 150 exactly. years old, less than, you know, it, so, I mean, that's nothing. Well, in the perspective that we're all, you know, talking about here is purely an American thing. Um, because to bring it back to this conversation that I was having with, you know, this German lady is, you know, I, I you know, was talking to her about, uh, some of my experiences when I lived in Germany and, you know, how I would, I would, be standing on, um, you know, these old castles that were a thousand years old, you know, and she was the point she was making about the American mentality and the European or, or old world mentality, um, we can say is that they were raised not knowing that things should be disposable that you should reuse and recycle them. Um, you know, that they were here, you know, why not reuse them? Um, whereas well, that's a very sustainable we, we kinda, way to think about things. Right. Right. But I mean, Imagine you know, I mean, and then, but think about the American, uh, the American mentality is, is that, you know, uh, big open roads, let's, you know, try to, you know, reach for conquer, right? conquer the new frontier, conquer the new frontier and just, and dominate it and shape it the way that we want, you know, that we want to do it, you know. So, you know, we were bringing that old world feel when we first settled and, you know, we're doing kind of like the traditional building methods. And as we evolve and change, you know, it's just like, okay, out with the old and with the new. And, and that's how we always tend to approach almost everything. I mean, I listened to a, uh, some architects uh, who predominantly design retail mostly shopping malls and they said what they're building today is already outdated in the you know model of retail 20 years from now um you know they're already thinking ahead but they're already thinking and designing for basically you know 20 to 30 year spurts well this is a whole we're going to rip this down and, and redo it so it is temporary yeah, so they they already know it's temporary. This yeah, and this this makes me think of a whole different argument that we could have another day, but it's, you know, we build new that is in the style of the old all the time, <laughs> right? I mean, that we built a, right, a yeah. new yeah. quote unquote uh outdoor shopping mall here and I mean it's it's like, okay, this street is Little Italy and this street is modern and this street is, is some, some other style. And and in that point, it, it just becomes dogma, right? I mean, it, it's it's just that look for the sake of being that look and creating a certain kind of a feel. And and so then you start to think, well, is that a good thing or is that a bad thing? Um, but and, and that kind of falls under this whole saving old buildings, right? Is how Is it a good thing or is it a bad thing? But but Evan, you know, out here on the West Coast, I mean, the shopping mall you just described, um, you know, I, I guess what I'm getting at is you build with the materials and for the conditions in your area, wherever that might be. 
I'm, I'm just ideally. thinking when I was just in outside. <laughs> well, ideally, yes. I mean, when I was just in Ottawa in Canada uh, recently, I mean, every building was brick. Um, that was the material they had. They don't have earthquakes. You know, that the, the stuff doesn't fall down like, like it would out here. Um, and, and then when I think when I lived in Italy, you know, they weren't, I mean, they were just building buildings and people were doing takeoffs of different styles from centuries ago. And so they were, they were doing something like what we're doing today, except they were creating, you know, old world styles in the 1700s. Um, and it's not that much different from what we're doing today. Um, but out here, we, we don't really have, I mean, what styles really oh, do we, we have, have out here? Well, we have every style, exactly, uh, because we can create that. Yeah, yeah. And, again, and we do. I think that's another conversation because style is, is different. Yeah, That's true. That's true. Outside of permanence. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, um, and then I want to throw Detroit into the old uh, mix. I was thinking about Detroit. Well. I mean, think about all of that, all of those abandoned buildings and what what is going to happen. Well... You know, here, wow, uh, that's a big, you know, that's a that's, big thing. That's a big thing. And, you know, it, it being near and dear to my heart because, you know, that's my place of birth and, you know, I'll, I'll be there in, in two weeks and, uh, for, you know, a two week spurt and then, you know, we're going to be back and, you know, um, I travel and document, um, the fall, the rise, the fall and everything else, um, of Detroit and I'm actually sitting, you know, while, while we're talking about this, I'm sitting surrounded by my father's, um, old slides of, you know, him taking photographs of the Detroit area, um, basically from 19, the mid 1950s all the way from when we left, um, Michigan in the mid seventies. And I'm looking at all of these photographs and I'm looking at what Detroit was and what I see De Detroit is today. And there's no real um, connection that I have to my father's Detroit um, because I just don't see it. I don't see it there. I, I see the shell of what was there, yeah. but I don't see that place anymore. Right. And, the vitality is um, gone. I mean, that's a big part of it, right? But there's, you know, and, and I, I, I say this often that Detroit is still one of my favorite cities because not only what it was, but I, I also think about what it still can be um, in that there's, you know, roots there. There's, you know, the, the history and the, you know, and we can start going through the philosophy of things and everything else. But there's a potential to build off of what was there. Um and move forward with, you know, something, you know, that basically kind of reflects what we've been talking about is, you know, taking down some of the old, repurposing some of the old, um, and then just, uh, rebuilding new. Yeah. Um, and, and, and they've, they're doing that a lot, you know, I mean, you, you see a lot of people and they'll photograph, you know, these old burnt out houses and things like that. And yes, it is hugely prevalent there, but, that's not exactly the image of the city that is really there. Well, yeah, um, look at what New York's doing at the World Trade Center site. I mean, they didn't rebuild the Twin Towers. 
But I mean, if you go to downtown Detroit and downtown Detroit is not the burnt out, uh, burnt out buildings. No. Downtown Detroit is a thriving, yeah. you know, town that people are investing lots of money into, um, to rebuild or to invest in. I mean, um, uh, I mean, there's a countless different, um, uh, you know, fortune 500 corporations who, um, basically, you know, took all of the different, uh, incentives and things and moved their companies um, to downtown Detroit. Well, yeah. And, you know, they see the potential. So they want to build off of that. You know, there's, um, there's a guy who owns Quicken Loans, who he moved the entire Quicken Loans operation to downtown Detroit. And he's systematically buying up all of these different buildings, block after block after block, and has released, um, basically his vision of what he feels, you know, Detroit and the new millennium is going to be, um, kind of reminds me of the, the, uh, the new Detroit vision from, uh, um, from RoboCop, but, uh, <laughs> you know, it, but I mean, it, but I mean, he's got this vision of, you know, being able to kind of weave the old and new together and, you know, keep the, um, the spirit of what Detroit was, um, in, you know, but, you know, have it the new thriving, um, of our time type Detroit. Right. Uh, well, well, cities, cities grow and change over that's time. That's the beautiful um, thing about, you know, urban areas, man. It's like, it's, oh, it's, yeah, a, right. it's a Absolutely. set of Legos, right? I mean, it's amazing. But I, I, well, I the, think this one has a possibility, a potential yeah. to do something that no other well, because, major city. Because they were hurt so bad. Yeah. Because they were hurt so bad in that, you know, it, you know, with white flight and everything else from the 60s on to today, you know, basically it went from the fifth largest city in the entire world um, to a ghost town. Yeah. You know, and now it's trying right. to, you know, return to a city that has relevance and you know promise and so it's it, it's really interesting well uh, I, so that that well the, i was just going to say the permanence or lack thereof of architecture uh has a lot to do with with the changes and the growth or the lack thereof yeah. in our cities as well i mean to kind of bring it around and tie it up um you know buildings they are buildings or structures. I mean, in San Francisco, after the 89 earthquake, the Embarcadero Freeway uh, in San Francisco was, was damaged. It was taken out. And now suddenly oh, the whole awesome. waterfront in downtown San Francisco is yeah. opened up again. And, you know, that, that completely changed uh, and now San everyone Francisco. is free to train uh, for their marathon. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, well, you know, this is something we could talk about forever, but we should probably wrap it up. Um, something else I guess we should maybe finish off with is so we, we wanted to put it out there for everybody that um, ArcaSpeak is a podcast that is completely self-reliant. And what we wanted to do is give people the opportunity to support the podcast. And so what we're going to be doing is on the next podcast, which is two weeks away, um, we're going to be reading off everybody's name who donates at least five bucks on the donate page at arcaspeakpodcast.com. And so if you donate five bucks through our PayPal there, we will read your name at the beginning of the next episode and as a friend of the show. And we would really appreciate it um, if you guys would show your support for the show and help us continue 
to make the show. That would be awesome. So please donate. That's right. And get your name read. Become famous. All right, Neil, you want to button it up here? Sure, sure. But if you have any questions or comments, please visit our website at arcaspeakpodcast.com or send us comments on our individual Twitter accounts, which are listed on the website. And you can also follow Arcaspeak on Twitter and visit our Facebook and leave some comments there. Uh, If you like the show as well, please uh, give us a review on iTunes. That helps spread the word. All right. Thanks, guys. We'll see you next time. Thank you, guys. All right. Bye-bye. I join the choir to sing. They're all competing for some other thing. I join the choir to sing. I join the choir to sing. They're all competing for some other thing. I join the choir to sing. Say I eat and breathe the race, my 